And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. I am confident that the Democratic Party will reunite on the basis of democratic principles and that together we will march towards a democratic victory in 1980. I think the Democratic leadership understands that we need to bring those people into the party. We need to transform the party. We need to make the Democratic Party a democratic party with a small d. I think the future of the party is working class, and I think that what I represent, and, and perhaps you know Senator Sanders, also Senator Warren, there's a lot of working class champions in the Democratic Party, and I do think that that's the future. Welcome to Talking Strategy, Making History. I'm Dick Flax, activist, retired professor of sociology, and a really old guy. And I'm Daraka Laramore Hall, a slightly less old guy and also an activist and political strategist. And on this season on Talking Strategy, Making History, we're going to be talking about one of the big questions for progressive strategy here in the United States in what we're calling a hitchhiker's guide to the Democratic Party. So one of the uh, motives we've had for doing this podcast is our sense that a lot of people on the left who are concerned about the electoral process think of the Democratic Party as enemy territory. They may use terminology like uh, it's a capitalist party, they're both capitalist parties, or other ways of diagnosing the problem. But the, the notion that the Democratic Party is not the terrain under which progressives and especially people who define themselves as socialists can operate uh, with integrity or with uh, the hope of really making change, even though in the present moment, the necessity of defeating Trump and the Republicans has led to this coalition within the party. Uh, it's viewed as unfortunate in the long run, temporary something that has to be abandoned as soon as we can. That's the kind of attitude, isn't it, Daraka, that we both share as something that we think is a wrong way of thinking about this. I think today we want to confront this more directly than we have so far in our conversations. Am I on the right track? I think so. I think that that's a good way to, to describe a phenomenon that we've seen in the last few years, especially, you know, not just in response to Trump, but put more positively as a as a response to this incredibly exciting uh, campaign by Bernie Sanders that opened up so much possibility on the left in American politics that people responded to to him running in the Democratic primary by saying, OK, yeah, this seems like a, a pragmatic move. We should get involved in the Democratic Party so we can push socialists. But but as you say, it's it's a very begrudging kind of acceptance of this of this strategy. And what you hear all the time uh, is that it's temporary or it's just until we can build a third party or a true workers party. And the way that I've seen that operationalized is even like as a party activist watching uh, a wave of 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 great you know, excited, motivated, uh, younger, new to politics activists come in inspired by the 
Bernie campaign come into the party, but they came in almost with this attitude of everyone who's been here in the Democratic Party is wrong, is an enemy, is suspect, is suspicious, uh, is, is probably morally compromised. And that didn't really help them build a lot of coalitions or political power in the party. Right. And, uh, you know, in a way, this is an attitude that's been ever since there was a left in this country, certainly in the late beginning, of the late 19th century, socialists were saying, we need our own party. You know, and in Europe, a good example would be the British Labour Party. The socialists kind of thinking or, or, or forces in Great Britain created a party which, in fact, took off and became one of the major governing parties uh, in England. And I guess that same sort of scenario was one of those that people 100 or more years ago on the left in this country thought was the right path. That British Labour Party model never was achieved here. And as we've said a little bit in our previous discussions, in the beginning in the 30s, a lot of people who were socialists then uh, began to say, we've got to enter the Democratic Party, support the New Deal uh, under FDR, and create space within the Democratic Party for a more leftward, social democratic uh, kind of politics. So people now, I think, think, people on the left, some people, that that all failed as well. But mm -hmm. I think one of my feelings is, no, it was never tried strategically to take the Democratic Party as a whole in a different direction with respect to the kind of social democratic politics we're talking about. The past battles of the left versus the party establishment we've talked about already had to do with white supremacy as a force within the party, getting driving that out, machine politics, driving that out. Those were, have been successful, but they didn't lead to a real labor party or people's party uh, as the outcome. That's what we're talking about now. That, that's why we want to do this podcast. But um, so I, I would say one argument, namely that it's the efforts to change the party have failed, I don't give that credibility, although maybe some people believe that's the case. You're in many ways much closer to the to these uh, debates and arguments and so forth than I am. So is that an idea that's widespread that people on the left tried to change the party and they failed? I mean, you're an expert on that. I think that's right, that there is a, a sense or, or an argument out there that given the the hegemony you could say of more neoliberal market-based thinking in the democratic party given the you know the wide and and widening gap between the rich and everyone else given the the lack of progress on racial equality um from certainly in comparison to where we'd like to be as a country that that all of that is evidence that whatever's been tried before is all a failure and so you know, any kind of engagement inside the Democratic Party must be a failure because we don't have socialism right now, which I think is kind of, as you point out, not a not a real fair rubric. And and we really haven't had a long term, multi year, multi decade sort of stick to it strategy by socialists, social Democrats, progressives inside the party. What we have is, you know, waves of engagement, periods of engagement not a lot of strategic thinking, and then 
um, kind of sitting on the sidelines for a few years as things get worse and then re-engagement. And I think one of the things that you hit on that's so important is that uh, that there is this expectation out there, I think, as a legacy of, you know, certain kinds of Marxist thinking uh, out in the even in the American left, that the, the goal should always be to have a pure party of pure ideology that would be never compromise uh, unfairly, never give up on any of its goals. Um, and uh, the Marxist piece of it is that that party would be, quote unquote, working class in character, which right. is be, you know, this this natural organic expression of the radicalized working class, not the middle class, not 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 the professional class, just the working class. And you heard that even in the 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 2016 uh, and uh, 2020 Democratic primary races or presidential primary races where. You know, people started to talk about Bernie Sanders is the only working class candidate that someone like Elizabeth Warren or Castro or any of the other progressives in the race weren't really left or weren't really progressive because they weren't, quote unquote, working class. And that's something I wanted to sort of tag and shake up a little bit, because if you look at the history of organized socialism in the world of of socialist movements that have you know, won power democratically and and achieved things through uh, through policy reform. All of them realized very quickly that you can't actually be a pure working class party and win elections. Yes, and and even even um, what? How do you define the working class? So, if it means people workers in factory in the factories, yes, that's not not a majority. Right. Um, and but a lot of, you know, we're both sociologists, so we know that from tremendous amount of literature on what is what how to define class and and is there a working class? And one way of solving that is to say, yeah, the, a working class includes everyone who works for uh, a salary or wage. Uh, who who uh, is dependent on an employer for uh, their livelihood, and that includes tremendous number of quote unquote professionals, white collar people. Mm-hmm. Uh, just within the idea of what is what is working class work, uh, there's a tremendous variety of conflicting sectors. Right? Yep. I mean, you. I would imagine that private uh, private sector workers. Uh, have resented public employees who are also workers because their taxes go to the wages of the public employees. And if public employees have certain benefits and and advantages over private sector workers, there's a basis of antagonism, even if they're all white and male, which they aren't. So that's the, that's the second point mm-hmm. that sociology has been obsessed with. And now it's very much that obsession is part of the the regular main discourse of politics is the fact that race and gender and and religion, ethnicity, all of these are cleavages within the working class, always have been huge in this country. Um, And they also, those cleavages relate to the occupational differences that uh, I mentioned at the outset. And I don't think there's any country, uh, advanced industrial country, with the long history of those kind of cleavages that that compares with this country. 
Now, of course, in Europe, there are immigrant workers and, and varieties of ethnicity in the working classes of Europe. But uh, here, we've had these ever since the beginning of any kind of working class consciousness and struggle. Part of that has always been racial antagonism, racial hostility, white workers, even even minority white ethnic groups becoming white, so to speak, in order to protect themselves against the fears of immigrant entry. That's the, that's the history of America to a very great extent. And a lot of the issues that you just raised are famous examples or famous reasons that the United States didn't develop a socialist labor movement in the way that other advanced industrialized countries did. Right. But even in those more homogenous countries, the cleavages in the working class that you talked about, whether it was around skill or region, ideology, I mean, the fact is a bunch of factory workers, despite hearing the socialist good news, voted conservative and vote conservative. And... The fact is that in order to be a majority party, the labor parties and socialist parties of Europe and Latin America had to have a message for professional middle class voters, eventually opening up to messages for women, messages around eventually the environment, mm -hmm. messages around a whole bunch of issue frames in order to pull together a majority coalition. And that's obviously even more true for the Democratic Party in the United States because our electoral system means that we can't just get 30% and be the biggest party and govern. We have to win every individual election by, you know, we have to get a plurality in each individual district. We have to be a true 50% plus one party in order to govern, often a 60% party. So what that means is this expectation that the Democratic Party would ever be a pure ideological socialist expression of perfect working class politics, not only is that an unfair expectation of any electoral majoritarian movement in the world, it's especially ludicrous, a bar to set for the Democratic Party in the United States. And, you know, maybe another uh, way of looking at the very same story is that the European parties that were more explicitly social democratic, I mean, the British Labour Party, in its charter for most of its life, had a clause that said their ultimate goal was public ownership of the means of production. Uh, they removed that precisely, uh, you know, not that long ago. They removed that in order to appeal to what were being called middle class voters, but they couldn't have a majority without trying to make that bridge. That's a big struggle in the Labor Party. But the point I was getting at is all the parties, isn't it true? And you you have close connection with the Scandinavian parties, which is one of the models that I know you have in your mind about things that we can learn from. But those parties have had internal battles, haven't they, about how leftward they could be, how socialistic they could be, and struggling to maintain in some often their majority voting base. Well, I think famously throughout the 90s, all over the world, social democratic, socialist and labor parties were struggling to find purchase uh, in a new political environment. And one of the strategies that a lot of them used was to move to the right or to the center, especially on economic questions, uh, exactly as you say, to appeal to voters 
who might have a little more stake in capitalism, a little more stake in the market economy, but they were trying to appeal to them on the basis of you know, the, the importance of the welfare state or uh, uh, environmental issues or just issues of good governance. And, you know, I happen to think that was a, a, a set of mistakes that those parties made. I think that they gave up a lot of really important policy and ideological tools for dealing with the inevitable crises of market economies and capitalist economies. But the point being the the takeaway is that there's not any place in the world really where parties that engage in in real democratic politics who are out there trying to either be part of or lead or cobble together majorities none of them are able to stay perfectly pure all of them are locations of struggle between more left factions and more centrist factions and and even more in more complicated way not just left and right but new groups of voters new groups of citizens speaking up, trying to transform the politics into something that's more relevant to them, whether that's young people, environmentalists, immigrants, uh, queer folks, etc. The point being, all parties, if they're big and they're meant to govern, they're meant to be majoritarian, they're going to have internal struggle and they're not going to be pure. And so when when leftists in the United States engage in the Democratic Party, I think it's more helpful to think of it as not a long-term struggle to make the perfect pure party, but in fact, the long-term struggle of politics in general to move our agenda and know that there's going to be opponents in our own party, outside of the party, et cetera, and that it's going to be a struggle. What you're actually saying, which to me is actually inspiring when you think about it, is that that is what it means to be in in politics, is to be in debate in in a struggle, whatever mm -hmm. terminology you want to use, even with people who are politically allied with you to achieve both the strategies and the goals and policies that you're aiming for. And instead of thinking, you know, there is a final answer if only we could get there, uh, we think of politics always, democratic politics, as an ongoing, never stopping process of uh, contention. That's right. And coming together, uh, various kinds of coalition, various kinds of alliance, uh, even within a single party. Not that that's a flaw, but that's actually part of what the central game is. If you want to use the word game, it's more serious than a game, but it is partly a game. <laughs> What difference does it make that you have a parliamentary system, as in the European countries, versus the kind of uh, the kind of uh, governing setup that we have in terms of this issue of party? Well, I think it, it, the big difference that it makes is you see the the struggle happens in either context, right? But you see this internal factional struggle happening in in different ways in a parliamentary system versus a presidential system or a first-past-the-post congressional system like we have. So these coalitions get built, the coalitions that have to be built between, you know, left-leaning liberals and democratic socialists and feminists and environmentalists and so forth to cobble together a majority. That happens in our system through primaries. It happens before elections. It happens in who 
which groups come together around which candidates. In a parliamentary system, it can happen in a more explicit way, in a more formal way after elections. You have more coherent ideological parties, parties that can be successful, not ever dreaming or caring or wanting to get 50% of the vote. They can get 10% of the vote and have an influence. And so you you see very often in parliamentary systems, a coalition government that comes out of an election where people went to the polls. They said, I want an environmental party uh, to have lots of seats in parliament. Other people said, I want a labor party to have lots of seats in parliament. And then the labor party and the environmental party and the liberal party and whoever have to figure out how do you how do you get that to 50% plus one to have a government uh-huh. beyond the bureaucratic formal mechanisms of that you also have this very important difference of thought between the two systems about what role uh, the parties themselves are supposed to play and there's an expectation in a parliamentary system that parties should be fairly coherent and specific in their messaging. Whereas in the United States, because the same organization is trying to, you know, win candidates to the Santa Cruz City Council and also get Biden a bunch of votes to win the electoral college votes from Ohio, it's much harder to say exactly the same thing to those two different groups of voters. Much harder. Although that's something that we I'm 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 uh certain that we're going to be getting into uh, as we proceed with our discussions uh, during this podcast series, because there are ideas that uh, for policy directions that could unify even across what seem to be now uh, major barriers. That's right. Because there are some common interests that can be bridged by by the right kind of, uh, you know, agenda setting. And and policy, uh, you know, like like the Green New Deal is intended to be. It's intended to be, uh, I think, a framework for environmental uh, transformation that is also broadly appealing to people who are, you know, really hoping for job jobs that that are decent for themselves and hoping for. Uh, you know, rising living standards, and it could well be that that's one clear way, one one key way for uh, bridging of the kind that you're that is so difficult. That's right. It's a key way of bridging it, and also for transforming the center. That's right. Of the Democratic Party and moving it to the left. That's right. And that, to me, is the the strategic difference here. The strategic question is like. AOC, all the time, whenever she's talking about the new the Green New Deal or uh, which candidates she's supporting in primaries, she uses the term we to talk about Democrats. And she makes right. a, a, an appeal that the Democratic Party, we, us, we should be more progressive, more left, more social democratic. And she's absolutely unafraid of talking about the socialist tradition and socialist politics in articulating what that vision should be for for the Democratic Party. And so that project is about moving the Democratic Party to being a more social democratic party, but understanding that it's going to be messy around its edges and it's never going to be like an ideologically pure and disciplined party. And that's a very different project, I think, than 
what you hear from folks who talk about the so-called dirty break, which is the idea of coming into the Democratic Party, winning some elections, getting people elected. And then at a certain time when somebody blows the whistle, like that group will leave the Democratic Party and be some kind of new, I, I think, obviously much smaller party out of broken out of the Democrats, because it's more important, I think, in that strategic framework. It's more important to be a pure, smaller party than to move the big behemoth, the big, uh, messy, giant majoritarian party. And that's where looking at Europe, I think, and looking at Latin America, looking at other electoral systems is so important because when American progressives look abroad, it, it, you got to ask yourselves, what, what are they enamored of? What do they admire about more progressive political environments? And it seems like there are some folks on the left in the United States, when they look to Europe, their model is the small, more left wing parties to the left of the social Democrats, to the left of the labor parties that are very pure and exciting and radical. But that seems like a weird thing. But wait a second. Yeah, yeah I know. But I, I used to, I thought that about, we're talking about Syriza in Greece. We're talking about right, or the, a Podemos in Spain. The left party in Germany. These are good examples of what you're referring to. And and those two parties, first of all, Syriza, so they had a chance to take over the government and then disappointed at people on the, you're calling pure left because they moved to a much more accommodationist, uh, centrist stance once they uh, were faced with actually governing in the crisis that Greece was facing. I don't know too much about that. I know less about Podemos, but I think similar, they're a very split party, even though they're not very huge because of these very same you know ideological deviations and conflicts that are going on there. So, I would like to know of any case in any part of the history uh, and any part of the planet of a party that was aiming to have majority support that remained, you know, as you're saying, pure and pr purely principled in its operation, that a party in itself could be the, the vehicle of social transformation may not be possible under any circumstances. It's a terrain, that's how I look at it. It's a, a framework for achieving certain key goals in the process of change, but it's not uh, going to be the vehicle uh, that people on the left at the, you know, 100 years ago thought they could build. Be and I think the evidence of history is you can't, a party can't be that way. Uh, and we sociologists have some knowledge about that because we were schooled by great theorists like Max Weber in particular, who said that once you create a party, then you are creating a bureaucracy inevitably that has its own interests, which are not necessarily the interests of uh, the goals that they claim to be working for. Uh, that's like built into the idea of building mm -hmm. a party. Uh, and um, there may be, you know, that's may it be another topic we'll come back to as uh, in, in future conversations. But I think that contradiction, which isn't really discussed by old Karl Marx, 
but Weber challenged Marx in a way by saying, but wait a minute, uh, you're forgetting power as an end in itself, not just class representing class interests, but power as an end in itself, the people who have it, you can count on them not wanting to give it up. Uh, Marx thought power in, in industrial society was to be used for class interest. And Weber responded, yes, but it's also an end in itself. People have power no matter what their ideology is. They may uh, typically be expected to protect their power uh, and not uh, and, and therefore resist change. And there were other sociologists, Michelle's, I don't want to get into too academic a framework here, but the academic, this is a case where academic theory is really of use for, for political activists. So one way to avoid uh, a bureaucratic party is to have a party that's so small and ineffectual that it doesn't, <laughs> uh, you know, it doesn't function as a, a bureaucratic party. And that's what, in a way, we can say a lot of social movement groups are effective because they don't expect to represent majorities of people, uh, or, uh, but but act in in ways other than the uh, electoral arena, and I think that's one way of understanding what's happened to parties in Europe, even that when they're ideologically uh, seeming to be coherent and explicit. Uh, so what we've said so far to kind of uh, summarize it, I think, is that. Um, in the world of majoritarian politics, where you're ru running and uh, you're you're trying to build a party that reaches and capable of winning the support of the majority of people, that majority is so diverse and with conflicting interests, even if they're all defined as working class, those conflicting interests mean that you can't have a pure, ideologically pure, totally coherent, leftward politics if you want to win elections, especially national elections. But the second point is parties with their or, internal organization uh, become end in, ends in themselves rather than actually continuously struggling to reach the goals they claim to want to reach. And, I and yet make, they are inevitable. There's no way to avoid uh, them in democratic politics. So that's right. It's not just that okay, parties have this uh, built-in bureaucratic tendency. It's also that you need a bureaucracy and you need organizations and you need mechanisms for dealing with internal conflict and you need a level of professionalism and you need all of those things in order to contest power in a dem in a democracy and in order to wield it. Hi everyone, this is Pear, the producer of Talking Strategy, Making History. That was part one of our show, and we'll continue next time with our guest, David Duhalde. You can support us and stay in touch on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, and Patreon at patreon.com slash tsmh that's patreon slash tsmh thanks for listening a working class hero is something to be 
working class hero is something to be 